Hey everybody, uh, you're listening to One Person's Trash is Our Treasure. I'm your host, Rachel. And I'm your other host, Jen. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a novel named Fourteen by author Peter Kleins. I wanted Jen to read this book because I think it's a really good book, first of all. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, I haven't heard or seen a lot of people talking about it, which I think is uh, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really interesting book. I, I mean... Even if you don't really like mysteries, check this book out. You know, you might be surprised going outside your uh, typical genre that you actually really enjoyed this. Yeah, this is outside a lot of the things that either of us would usually consume. Yes. And we both we both enjoyed it. Yeah. And you can find us online at uh, onepersonstrashisourtreasure.com. And we're also on Twitter at optiot, O-P-T-I-O-T, and on Instagram at optiotpod. Yeah, so I hope you enjoy. Today, Jen and I are going to talk about Peter Klein's novel, 14. Like most of the uh, novels we discuss on the podcast, this was a Rachel recommendation. Yeah, I am the reader in this friendship. (laughs) Rude. I feel attacked. <laughs> Way to call me out on our podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, deny it. I, <laughs> you know I can't. <laughs> yeah, so 14 is a novel that is kind of hard to place genre-wise. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the safest placement is mystery. It's not the safest placement because... We'll talk about it. Yeah, because of its actual genre, so much as it's the safest placement because... Partially because of how the story unfolds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The first two-thirds of the novel, I would say, uh, read like a mystery. Yeah. Jen and I both read this book the first time through the audio version. Yeah, the audiobook is narrated by Ray Porter. Yeah, mad props. does a phenomenal job. Okay, so uh, the book centers on the, our main character named Nate, and he is kind of a, a typical dude struggling, I think. Like, he's not doing horribly for himself, but um, I don't he, know. He's definitely fallen into that uh, young adult trap of not exactly knowing where his life is going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. In the beginning of the book, he's, like, looking for a new place to live, and he hears about this specific building that's supposed to have uh, super cheap rent. For Los Angeles. Yeah. And uh, he goes and checks it out, uh, rents a room there, and then a lot of the book is about him kind of exploring the building because there are some, I don't know, so there's there's weird shit going on. Yeah, so after he moves in, uh, actually before he moves in, he just starts to notice some really weird things about this building. Um, In part, the people. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of weird people who live there, just people who all seem a little bit offbeat. Yeah, yeah. Not only that, but uh, the guy he heard about the building from said that he lived there for like a few months and uh, found it to be off in that way. Yeah, which is why he moved. Yeah. You know, when he is looking at the building, the building manager, (laughs) who's, like, showing him his room, his potential room, they see a cockroach, Mm -hmm. and it's green. 
Right. And every time Nate talks to other tenants, you know, each of them has uh, things that might be specific to their room that's weird. And Mm -hmm. so it's just about unfolding this mystery of this building of, like, why there's so much weird shit surrounding it. As the book unfolds, Nate kind of uh, starts to enlist the help of his neighbors. And he kind of forms, like, a ragtag team of, like... (laughs) They they keep referring to themselves as like the Scooby Doo gang. Yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah, I about that. <laughs> which is really cute, and um, they kind of form this this weird little family. I did find that really cute. I think I was not expecting at all that to be the case. I don't know why, but for some reason, it took me by surprise. I thought the book was just going to be Nate and like maybe a couple of the other tenants who would form this like small tight group i was not expecting it to be several tenants in the building and i was really pleasantly surprised and happy with it there are a lot of characters like major characters in this book uh because of this family of neighbors Mm -hmm. that uh nate kind of accrues so many that we literally have them written on rachel's whiteboard right now (laughs) so we can reference them um, so there's, Nate is the, like, you know, protagonist and everything. Uh, then there's Veek, who I think is our favorite character. Mm-hmm. How do we describe Veek? That's a good question. The way Nate meets her is he's told by one of the other tenants that there is one person in the building who handles everybody's Wi-Fi. So he goes to the room that he's told to go to to find this this person. And he finds this woman who is kind of not standoffish. Well, she, she is. <laughs> I think a good way to describe Veek is no nonsense. That definitely fits. Yeah. She's very smart. She's a little closed off. I think one of the things that Jen and I both like so much about Veek is that she's kind of the opposite of feminine, but not masculine. Yeah. She doesn't wear girly clothes, but she doesn't necessarily wear, like, men's clothes, you know? She mm-hmm. just She's just not really girly. Yeah. But she's not like a, you know, she's not butch either. Right. It was really refreshing to have a female character in a book who was so different than female characters that I am used to seeing. Mm. And um, especially because this book was written by a guy, it really took me by surprise. Mm -hmm. When Nate and Veek meet, it's not exactly a friendly interaction, but pretty quickly uh, Nate realizes that Veek has also started to notice some weird things around the apartment. Mm -hmm. So they kind of like form a wary alliance that's a good way of putting it in order to kind of investigate this building and get to the bottom of what's going on let's contrast the (laughs) the entrance of veek's character to the entrance of another female character in the book yes let's (laughs) her name is zila and there's nothing wrong with her no (laughs) as a person here's how nate meets her <laughs> There's a, a a roof to this building. This building is called the Cavatch Building, mm. and as there so often are to buildings, there is a roof, <laughs> but like a deck. Is like, it? It's like a deck roof, like a 
it's like a usable space. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, you know, people can, can go up there. So Nate kind of finds his way to the roof and then emerges to find a woman sitting out and sunbathing topless. Yeah. Which is, like, fine. Yeah. <laughs> Help me explain why there is such a problem with this. <laughs> I think it rubbed Jen and I the wrong way because of how unnecessary it seemed. She's almost a manic pixie dream girl. She is, actually. She's an yeah. artist. She's got blue hair. She's no nonsense in a different way from Veek. Not in, like, a like a lesser way, but just in, like, you know that manic pixie dream girl way where, like, they're kind of ball busters? Yeah, that's, that's a really good way to describe her. I had a hard time getting through the beginning of this book because the descriptions of the female characters were so often gross and made me feel gross. But the performance of Ray Porter was a lot of what, like, kind of got me through it. To his immense credit, I feel like he kind of tried to put uh, less of a grody spin on it. <laughs> yeah. Every time he had to deliver one of those, uh, you know, lines or whatever. Yeah. So Ray Porter is a big reason why I love this book so much. And he does a phenomenal job doing the voices and the accents and everything, as we said. I don't think that that's necessary, but I think each character does need to have a different presentation. And not a lot of uh, narrators seem to do that. And I understand why. It's 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 tough. Because sometimes if you have like 30 characters in a book, that's a lot of different characters you're and playing as. part of different characters' voices should be in the writing. Yeah. Uh, one book that didn't necessarily need different voices for their characters was uh, The Handmaid's Tale, which is narrated by Claire Danes. And she does an amazing job. A book like this, however, that is so much more narrative than, like, artsy-fartsy. <laughs> <laughs> this coming from an, from a huge Handmaid's Tale fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I love that book. Absolutely phenomenal book. But it is written to be high art. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not necessarily written to be a narrative that you lose yourself in. Mm -hmm. You know, more fun reads, as I would <laughs> call this. Also, I mean, there's a lot of um, accents in this. <laughs> I remember it made me so nervous. <laughs> it made me so nervous because we haven't said yet, but um, what, nation what nationality is Week? I think she's Indian. Yeah. And it made me so fucking nervous when I realized that this dude was going to try to do a fucking accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that I held my fucking breath. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm not an expert, granted. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, like, disclaimer, I don't know. But it really did seem like he tried to do an honest job of not doing, like, a stereotypical accent or, like, something shitty or whatever. Like, he was just... I, I feel like Ray Porter was very aware of the pitfalls of narrating this book and sidestepped them beautifully. Absolutely. You know, th this is actually kind of personally, I felt that by the end of the book, I was no longer uncomfortable or grossed out by the portrayal of the female characters. Mm -hmm. But I can understand why you would be still a little bit with Zila. I think 
for me, the way Veek is portrayed consistently throughout played a huge part in really turning me to the other side of, you know, thinking that this is actually kind of a feminist book. I I agree with the fact that the portrayal of Veek is consistent throughout, and it's great to see her treated as, like, a human, like a character, rather than just, like, a body, which is how I felt a lot of the other female characters were kind of viewed. I appreciate what you mean by that. Yeah. My issue is not with Veek as a character at all, or her portrayal, or whatever. I think that that is great. My, I'm so tired of... <laughs> I am. I'm so exhausted about depictions of female characters. Maybe I just can't get past Zila. Like, I, I get why it doesn't bother you. I think I just latched onto it because I was so grossed out. You know, I mean, the fact that she's comfortable with her body is great, but the problem becomes when you're looking at it through a male character's eyes written by a male author. Mm-hmm. And it's very uh, male gazy. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, the... The, <laughs> the male gaze is definitely prevalent in this book. Yes. To, to the point where it was kind of tough for me at times to get through. You know, and then you get into the difficulties of like female characters having agency but can they really in situations like the best example i can think of is like costumes that fictional characters get put in whether they're in like video games or superhero costumes or whatever and it's like oh well she just wants to wear that and it's like no you can't argue that when she's a fictional character and you're a dude uh, deciding what she's going to wear. Yeah, and you mean that with regard to Zila being deciding to sunbathe naked. Right. It's, yeah. it's one thing that she is free with her body and whatever. It's another when it is looked at explicitly through the male gaze. Yeah, I, I totally know what you mean. So um, along with Veek and Zila... Some other members of this uh, family mm-hmm. are Tim, who is... <laughs> I love Tim. Tim's great. <laughs> <laughs> He's so cool. Tim, uh, as far as we know in the beginning of the book, is a new tenant as well. Mm-hmm. And he is a retired owner of a publishing house, I believe. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he's got something weird, like he's he's got a secret. Yep. And he's very um kind of rough and tumble cowboy yeah, type. He's, he's he's gruff and, and Ray Porter does a suitable uh yep. voice and accent for it. It's yep. pretty good. I mean some of my favorite parts of the book that didn't involve Veek were Nate and Tim sitting up on the roof drinking a beer. You yeah, know? yeah. Like, I just I found him to be very entertaining. He yep. I think he says to Nate that he's recently divorced. And he's just kind of looking to get away. And that's why he, like, relocated and found the apartment in the cabbage building. Yes. Then there is Roger, who is, uh, he, he works in Hollywood, and he's a grip. He's, he's like this bulky guy, because he's picking up a lot of stuff all day. Mm-hmm. And he says that he works a lot. He and Nate meet when they're both doing laundry together in the creepy-as-fuck basement. <laughs> of this building <laughs> i would can, just quick interjection i would not be able to live in this fucking building no i like cockroaches alone oh my god they yeah. don't even need to be green <laughs> no in upstate new york we have the privilege of not having cockroaches like 
anywhere. Yeah. So. I mean, we got bugs, which I could do without. But. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know that I've ever even seen a cockroach in real life. I have when I went to Texas. Oh, oh boy. (laughs) So just don't go to Texas. Yeah. After Roger, we have Debbie and Clive. They are a young married couple living in the building. Clive is a construction, or is he like a architect? Yeah, something like that. And Debbie is a grad student who's getting her master's. She's mad smart. She's she yeah she's like going into a science field. I want to say biology. And, and then we have Oscar, who I think is the super. I mean, he lives there and he like tends the day to day. So yeah, he he's he's like the one who um. If I understand properly, you, like, pay your rent to. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. He kind of just supervises the building and mm-hmm. everything. He also has an accent. He also has an accent. Where is he? Is he, like... Uh, I always got that he was from, like, Western or Eastern Europe. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. He's hard to pin down for a good portion of the book. You don't yep. quite know what his deal is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, as Ray said, the first two-thirds of the book centers around this mystery of the building. So the Scooby gang, as they call themselves, have to, like, go poking around where they're not supposed to. So they spend a lot of their time trying to hide what they're doing from Oscar, with varying degrees of success. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you don't really know who to trust, you know? I mean, you trust Nate and the other tenants who are on his side, but the owners of the Kavach building could be, like sinister in some way you don't really know what's going on so if oscar works for them like he could be in on it you don't really know like whose side he's on for a lot of it yeah there's andrew who's like this young (laughs) weirdo very religious uber religious um always trying to get people to join his church he does not put off a good vibe no yeah he thinks he's you know holier than thou exactly yeah yeah and uh, there's Mrs. Knight, oh. who is in, who is a crotchety old lady who oh. has lived in the apartment for 25 years, and we, we love her. We love her. She's got so much sass. <laughs> That's the Scooby Gang that uh, you know we spend the majority of the book with. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this book is because it's probably up there with uh, some of my favorite books that I've ever read. And if you know me and you know my tastes... Which I do. Yes. I was wondering if you thought that this would fit in with my general media preferences. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Simple. (laughs) Not really. Yeah. Which is not to say that you don't read a lot of shit. I think that both of us are pretty open to most genres. It's just that we have our favorites. Yeah. And so for you to love this book so much and have it be just not really what I would expect one of your favorites to be. I mean, that was interesting. Yeah. When I first found this book, it, it was actually recommended to me by Audible because it was uh, relatively new and Audible really likes to push certain books. And most of them I don't really find interesting. But for some reason, this book, uh, the description really kind of hooked me. And I think all it really said was just that, you know, it's about this guy who lives in this building and there's something weird going on. Mm -hmm. But something about it really hooked me. 
And then when I read a review that said that it was a good read for fans of H.P. Lovecraft, I was really sold. And it was so gripping and engaging and interesting that I sometimes didn't want to leave work because it meant I would have to stop listening, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. So I have no idea, really, (laughs) why this book is one of my favorite books that I've ever read. I couldn't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I think part of the reason is just because of how much it really gripped me and how engaged I was in this mystery. I was going to say, the experience of consuming something can have an effect on your final feeling about it. Yeah, definitely. You know, I found this book when I was working a really terrible job. So I think I'm just very grateful toward it for being such a positive influence in my life in that it could distract me and entertain me and completely get my mind off something that was stressing me out. I 100% identify with that sentiment. Yeah. Shout out to The Adventure Zone. (laughs) Go listen to that podcast. I love it. So from here on out, there will be spoilers. Do your spoiler song, Ray. No. (laughs) We edited out of the last episode anyway. It can still become a thing. No. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So if you you have uh, any interest in reading this book, go read the book. We encourage you to listen to the audiobook. Yeah, seriously. Do the whisper sync deal. Yeah. Enjoy Ray Porter's great performance and come back when you're ready to uh, hear spoilers. Yeah. You know, um, even if you are not a fan of reading or you're not a fan of audiobooks, um, if you find that you get really bored during your morning shower or you hate your boring commute and you're tired of listening to the same playlists over and over again or (laughs) you need something to listen to while you're working out, try an audiobook. I hated audiobooks. I'd never listened to one, but I was certain that I hated them (laughs) for a long time. (laughs) And then when I finally uh, gave one a try, I realized how much I loved them. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. (laughs) So, um, you know, try something new. You might might be surprised. They're like podcasts, but with stories. Like that doesn't exist in podcasting. Yeah. Spoilers from here on out. Yes. This is your final warning. Turn this podcast off if you don't want to be spoiled. And if you don't care, uh, welcome. Everybody (laughs) dies at the end. Yeah, no. (laughs) Not everybody. No. (laughs) Not everybody. (laughs) We mentioned this a little before. This book is kind of hard to pin down Mm genre-wise. As we said, the first two-thirds of the book are really focused on this mystery, And what's interesting is that there really isn't much of an antagonist in the beginning of this novel. You kind of maybe get hints here and there that Oscar, the uh, building supervisor, is a villain. He's, He's more an antagonistic force in that he kind of impedes their ability to investigate the building to the extent that they want to. Mm hmm he kind of provides some interesting sources of conflict that result in some fun shenanigans as they try (laughs) to figure out ways to get done what they feel needs to get done. That's interesting, though. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I I guess I had kind of been, well, I hadn't really thought about it very much at all, about, like, who the 
antagonist was. You're right, there isn't one. I guess my feeling reading it was kind of this, like, abstract mystery of the Cavatch house and whoever was keeping the secrets from... Because it seemed like there was something going on there. But, yeah. But yeah, there is no true antagonist for much of the book. No, and I don't read a lot of mysteries. So I'm not entirely sure about the tropes or the um, formula mm-hmm. of the genre. Like if they're like that a lot, you mean? Yeah, like I, I don't know if in most mystery novels there is a clear antagonist. You know, I mean, if it's like there's a murderer, obviously the antagonist is the murderer. Mm-hmm. You just don't know who it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, that's not really the case here. So, you know, there's all this really weird stuff about this building and it, it kind of becomes an obsession for him. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the reason why this book can function without an antagonist. Because you kind of get pulled into this obsession with Nate Mm -hmm. as he's discovering it, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, you're right there along with him. Yeah, definitely. And also, like you said, Oscar provides an antagonistic force and is almost a red herring as far as who's the bad guy kind of thing. Yeah. As Nate and Veek kind of uh, continue their investigations, they pull in the other residents of the building and form the family that we mentioned earlier. The mystery... And the stuff that they start to uncover really starts to snowball. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, they're, they're, they poke around the basement at one point just because there's like a locked door down there. Yeah. They find generators that are, as far as they can tell, pulling energy from the core of the earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, doesn't Veek say that the amount of generators and the size that they are, like, they would power way more than what the building would use. Yeah, I think she says it would power, like, the city. Like, the entire city. So they're like, what the hell? (laughs) At that point, they really start to realize that this isn't just some, like, weird, shady mob front or something. Yeah. Like, something, you know, plausible like that. They realize that there's something really weird and... Bigger. Bigger going on here. But they still have no idea. And neither does the reader. What did you think when they got to this point in the book where they discovered these generators? I had no idea. (laughs) How could you? You know what I mean? Yeah. But, like, did it surprise you? Like, no. I don't consume mysteries super often either. But, like, when I'm reading or consuming something that does have, like, a mystery element to it, I pretty much just want to get to the point where I know what's going on. I get a little impatient, I think. I, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> so I I wasn't like, oh my god. I was just like, what the fuck? And I kept going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Up to this point, this book was really just kind of playing off as like a normal mystery. I think I knew that it, before it became super obvious, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I had an idea that it was probably something not as plausible as, like like you said, like a mob front. Yeah. Just because of, like, I mean, the green cockroaches and all the, like, weird stuff that just could not be explained. But, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have, like, a guess as to what was actually going on. Me either. <laughs> and I had even read that review that said that right. fans of H.P. Lovecraft would love this. Yeah. Uh, at this point, they are more determined now than ever mm-hmm. to get to the bottom of this weird mystery of the building they're living in. So 
while Oscar is out, they break into this room and um, <laughs> just come out and say it, Rachel. I mean, <laughs> shit goes down. Shit goes down. There's a there's a a void, a black hole. Yeah, behind this door. There's just nothing there. It's it's literally a black hole. Like yeah. they they open the door, and they start getting sucked into the black hole. Yeah, that was pretty wild. Yeah, like this. Okay, <laughs> from that point forward, this entire book is wild. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I wasn't expecting it to be like that. Like you mentioned, I was expecting it to be supernatural. I was not expecting it to be wild, yeah. you know? Uh, this is also, for me, when it starts to become pretty cinematic. Yeah. The 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 whole, this, this whole part of the, um, you know, tail end of the book when stuff starts seriously snowballing is pretty sweeping, I guess. A lot of stuff is happening. It's like, it's big stuff. Everybody's involved, you know. Mm-hmm. And like we said, they open the door to this inexplicable black hole mm-hmm. <laughs> that just starts sucking them in. Nate almost gets sucked into the door mm-hmm. and they manage to get him out just barely and shut the door again. But they realize that Mrs. Knight is missing and that she was sucked into the black hole. Why are you laughing, Rachel? This, that I'm was not, awful. I'm not happy. About, I was really upset. <laughs> Me too. I was really upset about it. I just, but like, what a way to go. <laughs> Jesus. So at that point, everyone is uh, unsettled and upset and freaking out. <laughs> Understatement. Yeah. Because, you know, what they thought was just some weird mystery of this building became deadly. And... They almost give up on their uh, determination to figure out what's going on. Hey, uh, Nate and Veek do the nasty here, don't they? They do. You're (laughs) right. So he goes to sleep in Veek's room. I mean, thankfully not in a creepy... He's not, like, creepily like, hey, I don't think I can stay in my apartment. He's, like, genuinely freaked out. Yeah, no. uh, At at this point, their relationship... Like, Nate becomes a lot more likable to me. Yeah. Toward the end of... Like, toward the middle and end of the book. Um, He, like, he becomes so obsessed with this mystery that he loses his terrible desk job. I also think it's really interesting. There's a good amount of talk of, like... He's become the leader of this Scooby group. Yeah, and he's not really, like, Tim should be the leader. Right. Like, Nate didn't go looking for that. No. In fact, <laughs> when Veek first brings up the Scooby-Doo reference, mm-hmm. I think she calls him Fred. Yes! And he's like, I think I'm more like Scooby. Yeah. And from there, she starts calling him Scooby. Or Shaggy, is it? Yes. And she's and she's Velma. And, yeah. And she's, yeah. She's That's not- actually pretty cute. Yeah. But also, like, I think he has the conversation with one of the other guys and asks, like, hey, why is everybody, like, looking to me for, like, when we're going to have our next meeting or whatever or yeah. what we're going to do next? And and I think one of them says to him, well, like, you're the one who – I don't know. How do they put it? You're the one who, like – Who, like, brought everyone together. And yeah. Like, and, like, and like really decided you were going to spearhead this. I don't know. Yeah. Like, like he didn't decide he was going to spearhead it, but, like – he he's kind of the one who's like most invested and he kind of yeah. pulled everyone else into the like you said he, he investigation. it becomes an obsession. Yeah. So 
the the fact that he becomes more likable to me is probably a big part of the reason. Not that he's like the worst guy ever in the beginning or anything. It's just that no. like he's kind of like the stereotypical male protagonist that you'd find in any indie movie. Uh, <laughs> am I wrong? You're one hundred and ten percent correct. <laughs> He reminds me a lot of uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character from Adventureland. <laughs> Nate is absolutely Jesse Eisenberg's character from that fucking movie. In the beginning. Yeah. Later on, way more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, Jesse Eisenberg's character doesn't have to, like, the the water park isn't secretly a front for any kind of supernatural occurrences. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although, like, that would be a great fucking movie. Oh, and, my God. Uh, somebody make it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's almost like he, he rose to the occasion to be, like, worthy, in my mind, of being with Veek, who yeah. is who is <laughs> so an awesome, awesome character. And, and, and not because she's, like, perfect. She's no. She's so flawed and that's what i love about her she feels like a real person absolutely and alarmingly it's hard to find female characters who feel like people hey what's up adventure zone i really love you and i just i want to thank griffin mcelroy for giving (laughs) us this gift and it's just really great and i really love it and i have a lot of emotions bye (laughs) so yeah uh Nate and Veek's relationship starts off, as we mentioned, not really, like, close. Well, like you said, almost, like, rivalry is the wrong term, but there's, like, a hint of that. Like, they're not friends. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, like, like we said when we were describing Veek, she's closed off. Yeah. Um, there's not even really romantic tension between them. Nah. I didn't see their relationship coming. Which, normally when that happens, I'm kind of like, eh, you know? Yeah, I I didn't see it coming, but I, I, I kind of did. Really? <laughs> Only because I never trust. And this is, you know, it's fucking fine. This book, uh, the, the, the romances didn't, n- never bothered me too much. I, I ended up really enjoying Nate and Veek's relationship. But in most pieces of media... Where there is a male character and a female character, I never trust the writers to do anything but a romance. So that I, is a fair and valid point. Yeah, <laughs> there, yeah. I, thinking about it, there, I always do kind of have that moment in the movie theater where if I'm not watching like a romance or a movie that like makes it pretty clear from the beginning that there's going to be a romance, all I can think is you better not kiss. Like okay, seriously. <laughs> That being said, um cool it with the Jesus, not even yeah. has to bone. Yeah. That being said, I didn't really see it coming with Veek and Nate, mm-hmm. but I was pleasantly surprised because of Nate's transformation and because Veek is amazing mm-hmm. and because the way their uh relationship develops is really organic seeming mm-hmm. and not gross. It's not like, you know, he chased after her for a year and she finally caved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she kind of starts to show signs of liking him first. A little bit. When it started to become clear that they were going to be a thing, I was pretty on board. And when it finally happens, when they seal the deal. <laughs> as Bone down! Yeah, uh, it was really sweet. I, 
I thought it was kind of cute, you know? And this was probably the first time that there was, like, real tension between them, romantically. There had been tension. This is the first time I... You know, no, maybe, okay, maybe the distinction I'm trying to make is this is the first time there was, like, tension, but there, there had been a growing chemistry between them. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But this was something more... Yeah, this is the first time that it seemed like it was actually going to go somewhere. Which it does. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To the naughty zone. (laughs) I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. Is that the name of the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) To the naughty zone. (laughs) Fuck me. (laughs) Why do I speak? (laughs) So they go to the naughty zone. No, I'm kidding. Oh boy, I can't. Get so, get past it. So he's on the floor. She's in her bed. They're talking. I think he's cold. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty cute because you can tell that they're both, that they both kind of want something to happen. But especially Veek is like, she doesn't such want a, to want yeah. something to happen. She's such a loner and she's like lying to herself. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, he gets on the bed. Yeah. Because he's, like, cold, and she's like, well, I mean... Yeah, it's it's cliche, but, like, yeah. it's, it's cool. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> I'm cool with it. Me too. Um, and, and then they, like, start kissing or something, and, and they keep saying stuff back and forth. It's pretty cute. Yeah, like, I, oh, this isn't going anywhere. Yeah, this, it's, it's, it's just totally We're just fine. sharing body warmth. Yeah, oh. we're just, we're just, like, comforting each other. It doesn't yeah. mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's very obvious that they're completely lying and and it it it, like it sounds cliche and dumb but it's it's actually i found it to be very sweet yeah me too so then they like start boning right like but like yeah they're they're like we're just we're just friends i mean friends do this sometimes right yeah (laughs) and like okay we have a, a podcast that's marked as explicit so I shouldn't be hesitant of um, being crude because we talk about romance novels sometimes. So I'm just, I'm just gonna go for it. Yeah. As soon as he enters her, <laughs> I think, I think, is it literally like right after? I think it is. I yeah. think it says like he sank into her something, yeah, something <laughs> gross or whatever. And then, and then, he <laughs> and then he goes, "I think I'm in love with you." Yeah, and, and her response is. Damn it, Nate, you're ruining it. <laughs> so, uh, part of why that was so kind of delightful is, like, his clumsy <laughs> fucking, like, I think I'm in love with you. Like, you just fucking can't. What a loser. Yeah, I was I was surprised I was cool with that. Yeah, I, I, I ship it. Yeah. That's, like, the, uh, the bit of happiness in this, like, really depressing <laughs> part of the book. Yeah. So, uh, let's talk about the twist. Yeah. The characters, Debbie and Clive, the married couple, uh, their apartment is different than every other room in the building. It turns out this room is really significant because behind the, uh, panels of the wall, they find a control panel of sorts. Yeah. They find this, like, weird, like, th- bunch of buttons and shit. Uh, when they find this control panel, Roger ends up pushing one of the buttons, and Nate's looking out the window, and there's, like, a weird reaction in the building, and he sees something flying outside? Some, like, giant weird creature. Flying in the sky. 
singing a song? (laughs) (laughs) It describes it as a tentacled flying thing with bat wings. As all mysteries have, this book has a twist. And it twists hard. Yeah. If you haven't read this book, you would never guess what the twist of this book is. Mm-hmm. You you literally could not until Nate sees that thing. Yeah. All right. Like, we're in the spoiler part, so we don't have to be coy. No. If the description of the creature didn't ring any bells for you, let us just provide the word Cthulhu. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Cthulhu. Because that's what it is. (laughs) Yeah. Remember that religious guy in the building who was like holier than thou and always trying to get people to join his church? Turns out his church is actually basically a cult of Cthulhu. And (laughs) (laughs) it's a group of weird non-human people who are trying to bring Cthulhu to the realm of, like, man. So I I really liked that twist, that Andrew thing. I, I, I don't know what I expected to be done with Andrew. Not that I didn't see it coming. I never trusted him, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... But I thought that part was really cool where, where like, uh, first of all, Ray Porter does a really creepy voice for him. And yeah. It's so fucking awesome. Yeah. But, like, you know, his um, his family, who are the other members of the, the cult, you know, it's effectively creepy and a really interesting addition to the already wild story. Yeah. And what what you find out is that the man who built the building, the Kavach building, he was the grandfather of... H.P. Lovecraft, and he uh, told his grandson all these stories about this stuff with the Kavach building. That- because he, I mean, he couldn't tell anybody else, and who's going to believe a little kid? Yeah, and then H.P. Lovecraft, you know, went to, like, write his stories about Cthulhu and everything. Mm-hmm. But he found out that there was, like, going to be some merging of dimensions or something to that effect where Cthulhu was going to come to Earth and, like, destroy everything. <laughs> so he gets together with some, like, guys from the 1900s and, like, like Tesla, <laughs> and they build this building, the Kavach building, to be a door that they can close to prevent him from being able to enter our world. So that explains why they have generators drawing energy from the core of the earth to power it and why there's all this weird stuff going on in the green cockroaches and Mm -hmm. the black hole room they find out is an anchor. Yeah, I was going to say, doesn't it like have something to do with it offsets something or something? Yeah, it's like it's like the anchor because there's so much power and energy or whatever and dimensions and whatever string theory. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. So um, they find this out because when Andrew finds out that they find the control room, he brings his creepy cult family and everything. And Oscar, the building supervisor, realizes that shit has gone down. So he starts to just explain everything. Andrew and his, his people overpower everyone and they kind of are forced to open the door Mm -hmm. and they end up they end up in Cthulhu's realm and as Oscar is about to tell them how to uh, reverse it 
one of the Cthulhu's reaches through the window and grabs him and takes him away. Oh, man. So Oscar's gone. (laughs) Poor Oscar. I know. I ended up liking him, you know? I mean... Yeah, yeah. especially when you realize that he, like... He's just trying to keep the world from being destroyed. Right. I mean, his, his like, crotchety super persona, I mean, it's not a persona, but it's, like, it, there's, like, a reason for it. When he's, like, on their asses about them poking around the building, it's because he's trying to keep them from fucking something up. You yeah. Know? Yeah, exactly. The group is freaking out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they know that they need to get back and they need to close the store because it is what's keeping Cthulhu away from Earth. But also they can't just like leave Oscar because mm-hmm. there's a chance that he's still alive. I mean, I, like the second they decided to go, I was like, this is going to be fruitless. Yeah, I I know what you mean. I had hope, but I completely yeah. agree with what you're saying about how it kind of was pointless. Like, it did almost seem like it was just kind of an excuse for Klein to be like, look what's look, going on here. It's, it's Cthulhu's realm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird and cosmic horror yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You said you really liked the twist and the direction that it went. Sure, yeah. It completely took me by fucking surprise. Mm-hmm. I had no clue that this was going to end up being like a thing where Cthulhu was trying to come to Earth. Mm-hmm. At first, I was like really disappointed, but I became really down with it. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big Cthulhu person because mm-hmm. I don't really know much about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know a ton about Cthulhu either, other than um, the basics of the genre of, like, cosmic horror and everything. Mm-hmm. I'm really intrigued by it. I have kind of a love of things that are kind of, like, big <laughs> in sweeping like that. You know, like, um, like the whole concept of cosmic horror is that... <sighs> humans are so pointless in this grand scope of the universe, you know? Because Cthulhu is technically just like an alien Mm -hmm. who is so powerful, he might as well be a god. Yeah. So in that sense, you know, cosmic horror is kind of like about something bigger than, say, like an indie film would be, you know? So I, I kind of have an attraction to stories and themes like that. So like, do like, I. Ki- like, kind of the, um... Well, I was gonna say, like, how good sci-fi is about humans, but mm-hmm. it's, like, but it's it's more than that. Like, it tells humans, and it's, it's about, like, humanity and its, right. its role in the universe. Exactly, exactly. I googled a little bit about Lovecraft and, like, what does it mean if something is Lovecraftian and that kind of stuff. It, I mean, it's what you said. It's, like the cosmic horror of the unknown Mm -hmm. and and how like i guess lovecraft was um really big on how the laws of our world and like especially our like society and shit they have no bearing on like anything other than our world and to assume Mm -hmm. like the opposite is silly and like stories where human stuff is like put on things that aren't human or it's like yeah and like while i get that i do like i love stories about robots who learn about humanity you know what i mean yeah no (laughs) 
I think just as humans, we're very egocentric and we're attracted to stories about us, well, you know, also- and our, and the human condition. And even if a creature or a character in a piece of media that we're consuming isn't human, I think we still need to see humanity in them to identify and to like them. Yeah. There's something about consuming a sci-fi series that is about the nature of humanity and all, all that stuff versus something that is much smaller scale. And, uh, you know, both have their place. A story with a smaller scale can talk about the nature of humanity, but there is something to that, those, like, sweeping examples of it that, like, pulls like you epics. in more. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe part of the, like, the, there's a, a big emphasis on um, existential nihilism with Lovecraft stuff. I, I get the feeling that he didn't really care about the nature of humanity and its role in the universe. He was just like, it's bullshit. It doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I get the feeling that Lovecraft and I wouldn't really get along. He was also super racist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, this coming from someone who really hasn't had a ton of experience with Lovecraft, but with the Cthulhu's and other creatures like that, I feel like the appeal is that it's bigger than humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's outside of humanity. So, which in its own way is a commentary on the nature of humanity. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because we're it's still in a way, yeah, humans so, uh, obsessing about humans. It's just exactly. that we're being and forced it, to obsess about ourselves in a different way. But also by obsessing about the absence of ourselves. It's also about humans obsessing about the unknown. Apparently there's a, a big theme of like curiosity in his work which shows up in 14 yeah. of like the you know, the tenants being curious. Like nothing drives them but their curiosity and Nate becomes obsessed. Exactly. And like that's very human. Like curiosity is a superhuman quality. Yeah, not a not a superhuman quality. Yeah. yeah, it's it's extremely human. Yeah, and the notion of Cthulhu being revered as a god. Yeah, like the idea of looking to a higher power is still placing a value on humanity in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I-, I thought it was really interesting to read about these, like, philosophies that I guess Lovecraft had and try to apply them to 14 and realize that they don't really fit. Like, no. like 14 was obviously inspired by Lovecraft, but it does not have those kind of, like, nihilistic themes. And humanity prevails in 14. Humanity, exactly. like, they, their their curiosity and they, I mean, their curiosity doesn't save the day. Their curiosity kind of fucks up. Yeah. But it's ultimately triumphant of them having, like, they they figured out this mystery and they saved the world from themselves. And mm-hmm. they are, the, like, they kind of become the watchers of the Cabbage Building. I don't know. I just, I thought I thought it was interesting that it, you can't apply the same themes that seem to be so prevalent in Lovecraft's work to 14. Of, you know, that kind of nothing matters kind of. Yeah. Thing. I have a lot of problems with uh, the philosophy of existentialism. I don't think that it is the natural state of the human condition, and I don't think that it's necessary or uh, beneficial in any way, in part because I think that it often descends into nihilism. 
which is different. Like, the dividing line between existentialism and nihilism. Mm -hmm. Nihilism is wallowing in life has no meaning, you know. Right, right, right. Existentialism is is learning that fact, accepting it, and just moving on, Mm -hmm. you know. But I think that this notion of, of the absurd that, like, life doesn't have meaning and we try to attribute meaning to things and and you should stop doing that it's that's why yeah. it descends into nihilism mm-hmm. you know yeah existentialism is really just like the exploration of the meaning of life you know right. and, yeah, and exactly. you know in general i think most philosophers come to this idea that there is no meaning that's you know? me as being pretty pretentious exactly but yeah. yeah exactly and that's this whole Lovecraft thing. And I liked what you said about how this novel uh, explores a lot of the same, like, themes and um, aesthetics as Lovecraft without going into that weird nihilistic place because it ends yeah. on a hopeful note. Exactly. I was going to say, it, it kind of subverts that. Exactly. I think nihilism is a little bit of a disease. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> I, is. I, I, I can find characters who experience nihilism to be super interesting, but I just think that's not to be celebrated. Yeah, I, you know I, I, I mean? agree. I, I, it's a very pretentious and kind of shitty way of like looking at the world and other people. So, concluding thoughts, Jen? I liked it. I didn't feel about it the same way that you did, mm-hmm. but um, I did really like it. I thought it was very interesting. I, I mean, I, I, I so struggled in the beginning. So I think that was tough for me and kind of colored my experience a little more than I wish that it had. But, you know, it was super interesting. I did really enjoy it. And, I mean, even without knowing anything about Lovecraft, which I think is cool because I don't think if you're creating a work of fiction, I don't think that someone should have to have consumed another piece of fiction as homework to understand what you made. I completely agree. How did you feel getting out of your uh, comfort zone as far as genre goes? I find it really refreshing to uh, read something new once in a while, you know? I I felt good about it. I did find it kind of refreshing because, I don't know, it's, it's nice to um, broaden your horizons. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. No, seriously, it is. No, yeah, I, I don't know why I said it like a douchebag. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> so, that was our conversation. You listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> if you've made it this far, uh, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but also, uh, reach out to us on social media. Uh, once again, you can reach us at one person's trash is our treasure.com or on Twitter at Optiot, that's O P T I O T, or on Instagram at OptiotPod. Let us know if you have encountered any book or movie or TV show or whatever that you were surprised by the genre that it ended up falling into, despite what you thought it was going to be. Or. Let us know if you uh, have found something that you absolutely adore that is outside your typical genre. Yeah, totally. Because it can be so interesting to step outside what you would normally read or watch or whatever. Definitely. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. I barely had any wine. And yet. 
I haven't heard of it. I'm just <laughs> looping. <laughs> I am so high off cold medicine right now. Oh no. My boob just bumped. <laughs> what if I. Well, okay. What? <laughs> Did you just have a seizure? Don't ask me. I'm high on cold medicine. <laughs> What's that phrase for like. I'm just hitting my head. <laughs> Hoping that you'll understand what I mean. No, I don't, Jen. <laughs> Thanks approaches to literature <laughs> with Dr. Sadow. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> Am I high on cold medicine? Why are you looking at me? I'm drunk. What do you <laughs> want? <laughs> outro time. Time to record an outro. <laughs> Please keep that in. No.